Here we go, guys. We're about an hour earlier than usual tonight, but uh, we had to make a, a last-minute change. Uh, so uh, I'm Mark Real, um, California family law attorney and founder of Real Fathers Rights. Um, and tonight on the show, we have a very special guest coming from the great state of Minnesota. So uh, welcome, Ryan McLaughlin. Uh, thank you, Ryan, for joining us tonight. On, uh, I guess, on short notice. You were supposed to be our guest next week, but uh, we bumped you up a week. No problem. It's uh, it's my pleasure to be here. It really is. Um, you know, I think legal world is complicated for one, and being a dad in family court is you're dealing, you're juggling right legalese. Plus, you feel whether it's true or not. And I think it is true, but there's a stereotype that dads are like in family court where we're fighting an uphill battle. And anytime anybody's fighting an uphill battle, I look at it like a kid, right? Like I'm a kid with the Rubik's cube. Like how do you solve this problem, right? Like how do you level the playing field in a creative way so that people can feel not screwed by the system, but like the system is serving them. And uh, so I appreciate what you're doing. Um, I really, really appreciate it. I appreciate the invite. Yeah, awesome. Thank you for joining us. If you didn't catch the hint, so not only does Ryan practice family law, uh, he also works in the the constitutional law space, which I know is is heavily debated within the Facebook groups and on the message boards uh, in the fathers' rights community. So we're definitely going to be digging into that as well. But first, I always got to give you guys the attorney disclaimer. I'm an attorney barred in the state of California. Ryan's an attorney barred in the state of Minnesota but we're doing this for educational purposes only. Nothing we do or say tonight should be construed as legal advice. Nothing can replace you going and talking to a local family law attorney about your specific situation. So we're doing this to educate you guys. Um, if you are in, this, in Southern California or California in general, you can reach out to me, my website, www.realfathersrights.com. If you're in the state of Minnesota and you're in the market for representation or advice, you can find Ryan and your website, Ryan, is? It's mclaughlin-law.com or you can find me on Facebook, right? Find me on Facebook. Yeah, I think both of us, Ryan does Facebook lives pretty regularly. Both of us are very responsive on Facebook, both our, our business pages. And uh, I, I'm sure, Ryan, with you doing the lives, you get quite a few friend requests on your personal page as well, too. Um, yep. So you, you, you can easily find us if you're out there looking for us and um, we'll, we'll do everything we can to help you. So let's go ahead and hop into the meat of the conversation tonight. So um, let's talk Minnesota law. And so as always, I'm going to dive in. Let me get my, my uh, National Parents Organization scorecard um, up. So it looks like Minnesota grades out on the NPO scorecard as a B plus, which is yep. slightly above average. Um, positives about Minnesota, uh, statute requires a court to use a rebuttable presumption that up upon the request of either or both parties, joint legal custody is in the best interest of the child. The negative in the state of Minnesota is that, uh, there's no statutory preference or presumption for shared physical custody for temporary or final orders. In fact, in the state of Minnesota, the, uh, the preference or presumption of shared physical custody is specifically denied. So we got a little bit of a mixed bag, um, slightly, I would say slightly favorable, above average in terms of the shared parenting grading. Um, 
so you're on the ground, you're in the courts on a regular basis. How does the, how do the courts in Minnesota treat parents and then specifically fathers? Yeah, good question. Before we get there, you mentioned the legal disclaimer, right? The standard where we are lawyers, we are licensed in, in California, Minnesota respectively, but you guys got to seek out your own counsel in your own areas. My challenge to everybody is, yeah, actually do that. Like actually take what we're saying today and bring it to an attorney near you um, or contact one of us and ask more questions and say, hey, I saw this thing on the father's rights movement. They were talking about constitutional law. Can we talk about this? Can we use this? Are you aware of this? Is this right? Is this true? Um, otherwise, what we're saying is just just talk, talk, talk. So use the stuff that we're saying, write it down. Um, and specifically, and, and I guess if there's one take home point for what I'm saying, it is to say, is your attorney aware of the possibility of a constitutional challenge? Is that even in their brain? And if it's not, it should be. Um, and hopefully at the end of this thing tonight, this hour, you'll have a blueprint for what you should be using for constitutional challenges. Um, Mark, with that said, what's the situation on the ground in Minnesota? Uh, you said a B plus, is that what you said? Uh, B minus. So if you're not, I don't know if you're familiar with NPO, uh, actually Don's going live tonight in about an hour, everybody may maybe tune over into that. But every couple of years, they grade out every single state plus Washington D.C.'s uh, child custody laws, and they 51 states or 51 50 states, and then Washington D.C. Uh, 25 of the states grade out C to C plus. Um, there's two F's, two A's. So uh, really, C is about the median. So it's slightly favorable statutorily in terms of shared parenting. Got it. So my perspective, Minnesota, what's the situation here? It's a 25% parenting time presumption. You you get divorced, you go through a custody action. <clears throat> the, the, the presumption is that you get at least 25% parenting time. And what does that mean? It means that's the bar. Um, can you go lower? Yes, if, if there's a showing um, of endangerment uh, yes, you could have less than 25%. Um, but otherwise it is as the term suggests custody battle, right? You have to prove up to the court that you're worth more than 25%. And this is where I think constitutional issues come to play, but, but that's the basic setup, um, mm -hmm. is that it's a 25% threshold. That's what, so what does that amount to? It's approximately every other weekend. That's what, in fact, what does it actually mean? It means as a dad, what are you likely to get every other weekend? Plus some holidays, plus some vacation, summer, yada, yada, yada. Um, in Minnesota, just statistic wise, 36%. The average dad will walk away from a family file with 36% parenting time, right? So the average mom, conversely, will have double that. So what does that look like in the state of Minnesota? Because 25% is essentially, like you said, every other weekend plus yep. a weeknight visit, add a little bit more time in the summer. 36% yep. is that every other weekend and then you're doing week on, week off or something like that in the summer? It could be. I mean, it obviously varies case to case, but yeah, that's the status quo. Week on, week off, which isn't, you know, the court rationalizes, it's not too big of a, of a move for a limited summer vacation. Um, and like you said, every other weekend with a weeknight dinner date or something like that, um, if there's long holiday weekends for school, but it's not much. It's not much. And the point is, whatever it is, it's not 50-50. Um, and that's 
can we dive into the constitutional thing here? Yeah, go for it. So the biggest, like, okay, you get divorced, you have your kids. Both parties are wonderful people or good people, right? They should share equally. That's my presumption. That's what I'm thinking in my mind. And look, two points that I have today. One, that's what the constitution requires. And two, that's what all the research says is in the best interest of the kids. Two very separate points. It just so happens that they, the, the social science literature about what's best for the children in terms of a parenting environment supports what the constitution says. That's wonderful that our constitution has this, didn't even know it had this social science research to back it up. But um, that's, that's and, and constitutional arguments never get brought up in court, ever, right? It's like, we're, all, we're constantly arguing about what's in the best interest of the children according to these 17 different factors or whatever your state uses, right? Psychology, religion, cloaks to school, work, all these different factors, but nobody questions, wait a second, don't I have a constitutional right to my kids? Is that even a thing? What are constitutional rights? What do they apply to? Do they apply in family court? How do I make these arguments? <clears throat> um, and interestingly, um, I filed the constitutional challenge in Minnesota on behalf of a client who gets less than 50% parenting time. He has something around 35, 36% parenting time. And we filed that motion in March. We had a hearing yesterday. We'll hear back in October. So this issue is before the courts, the state district court, the lowest level court in Minnesota. Um, I talked to the judge yesterday to see if she would uh, give me, this is on the record, any indication of which way she was going. She said no. Uh, she said she read the briefs, were fascinated by the briefs. Um, I said, you know, this is a chance for Minnesota to make history. She said, I'll take the matter under advisement uh, and we'll, we'll find out in 89 days. Um, but to dive into the constitutional, what what is the constitution in 30 seconds have to do with family law and fathers? Um, we can go into this more deeply and, you know, in my briefs we do. Uh, but suffice it to say, the Supreme Court for the last hundred years has said parents have a fundamental right to their children. That's step one in the analysis. Let's There's stop there. Let's stop there. Explain to them what that means. So we have, I think the Supreme Court rule, the, the holding in the Supreme Court ruling actually says a fundamental liberty interest, which is that, that fundamental right. So can you explain to the viewers what that grants you in terms of the strict scrutiny? Yeah. So, so yeah, there's, there's, yeah. So to answer the question, if a fundamental right is at stake, right? What, who cares, right? What's the, what does a fundamental right mean and why should you care? Well, it means you get certain things and what you get is you get the benefit of the, if the government is going to do something with respect to that, right? If they're going to tinker with it, take it away, they have to say that their law, like a parenting time statute, is the least restrictive means it's in case law it can be considered the least restrictive means meaning there's no other concoction no other recipe of statute um that that burdens the right um uh in in in, in this tiny way we're using the most like we're doing the least amount of damage by the statute mm -hmm. and another way of saying it is saying it's the it's a it's um uh, it's narrowly tailored, right? It's the most narrowly tailored. We're doing the least harm. We're stripping away the least rights. 
and you look at the statue on its face, it doesn't take a, a rocket science to figure this out. 25% parenting time is more restrictive than 26% parenting time presumption. It's more restrictive than 27%. It's all the way up to 50%. 50% parenting time is the least restrictive um, parenting time statute because both parties are equal. So you're not taking away from one or the other. Mathematically, this works out super cleanly for a constitutional argument where the standard is least restrictive means because we can quantify the amount of restriction. To me, it's case open, case closed based on the math. Um, and this issue, interestingly, hasn't been litigated. Constitutional, the family law bar, family law attorneys, family law gurus, right? They're all about custody evaluations. They're all about guardian ad litems. But the constitutional law thing is not brought into the family law context. Um, so part of what I'm doing is telling folks, look, steal my legal briefs, which are public documents, and hand them to your attorneys and say, can we do something like this? I think every family law person who's getting less than 50% parenting time, man, woman, or otherwise, should be using these arguments. And so how, in in your brief, and, and it's something that probably in the next two or three days I will be reading, um, in your brief, how did you, so it's, it's a, to remove it has to be a compelling state interest and it has to be narrowly tailored because right. it's a fundamental right. So the biggest issue we see in family law court, the elephant in the room is there are every single state uses some form of best interest of the child. And essentially the opposing argument I'm going to guess is it's in the, it is a compelling state interest to act in the best interest of the child. It is. I agree. I think that the, so, but these two things are different, right? The parenting time statute says if you split you get 25 percent parenting time as a presumption you guys got to prove up everything else it's a war between it's a war between the parents that statute different than the parent than the best interest standard which says the court has a duty to look after the best interest of the children using the following factors which by the way just gives the court carte blanche to do whatever it wants citing these factors right? One judge can sit in front of the Johnson family and say it's in the best interest for dad to have this and mom to have that. Another judge, same family, same facts, can find something completely different, right? So the best interest standard is constitutional junk for very different reasons. Um, but the point is, the state does have a compelling interest in protecting the children, right? The state, but, but parents have a competing right to the care, custody, and control of their children. So these two things are separate. The compelling interest of the state um, still has to be narrowly tailored. And even using the best interest standard, it's not. Never mind the fact that the best interest standard is void for vagueness because it just lets judges do whatever the hell they want. It's still not the least restrictive means. The parenting time statute can apply the best interest standard just using the 50% presumption. Right. So in my brief, the one change that I'm asking is that the court take an eraser and declare that the 25 percent should be replaced with the 50 percent and order the legislature to amend the statute. Yeah, because you can from, from a jurisprudence standpoint, essentially you would need a ruling and then it to get appealed by one side or the other for it to hold any precedence. Yeah, I mean. I mean, if a district 
if a district court judge declares a statute unconstitutional, then that that statute can't be enforced any longer statewide. And that's that's what we're asking for. Um, I don't know if we'll get it, but I think that the, that the value of of discussions like this is we are planting seeds in parents' heads to bring to their attorneys to put before judges, and that's the only way things can happen, right? Collective consciousness. Yeah, definitely. So in terms of on the ground in Minnesota, is there is there support outside of doing this through the through the courts in terms of the legislature doing anything to amend the statutes? Have there been any recent changes or or any wave of action like we've seen in Texas and Florida had some action over the past week in terms of changing the legislation? It's tough. Um there were proposals before both the House and Senate, and there have been in the past several sessions, and there have been for the last decade, but they've gotten nowhere. Mm -hmm. And I don't, I can't predict, right? And I, and it's not, it's not my skill set. It's not my area of expertise. It's not my, it's not my wheelhouse to predict uh, or to forecast or really even to comment upon what the legislature is up to or, or when they might get over this hurdle. But proposals have been made each year for the last decade, and they've always been—they've always died in committee. And why is that? Um, the politics are irrelevant, right? For—I mean, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not privy to it. I just made the decision that knowing that my resources would be best spent going to the court system. Um, I actually don't think that that's going to be the most successful option. I think the courts are slow, the legislature is slower, and I think the best avenue is and the most success that i've had is is using the media right using the fourth estate using media going directly to the people um the standard press like our local tv stations our local newspaper um all but one have been reluctant to pick up the story we do have a local tv show here who ran a brief clip when we did file this constitutional challenge and that was great right we got so much support both my client who was the named litigant here the named challenger and myself so um i think this conversation and other conversations like this online is the way to go for everything family law right i think there has to be an exposure of what's happening and a conversation about it um for anything to get done yeah definitely i mean the i i think the a question got posed last week and it was what has changed and what has brought this equal and shared parenting movement into uh, off the fringes and in more into the mainstream and it's social media, it's people willing to have conversations, it's creative arguments being made in court uh, and being brought to the public. Um, I think that even over the last, 2021 was a big year in terms of, of states modifying their family codes. Um, we, saw, we saw the state of Arkansas get the presumption this year, facts, findings, and conclusions in about half a dozen states, which are huge steps forward. So turning it back to dads that are in the system right now, they walk into their attorney's office and they get a they have a copy of your brief and they say, Hey, take an hour, read this, tell me what we can do on it. What, what do you think the most, what, what are the strongest two or three arguments um, that you think every single father, every single parent who's being wronged in the family court system need to bring up to their judge? I think the two things, and th these are the two take on points. One, I have a 14th Amendment due process right to 50% parenting time unless you can show I'm endangering my kids. 
Like, enough said. Enough said. Like, open, closed, beginning, end. Tell me why I don't have a constitutional right to 50% parenting time. Like, show me allegations, credible allegations of child abuse, right? That, that presumption is rebuttable, right? Am I incarcerated in a danger? Is there, am I convicted of the fifth degree, fourth degree, third degree criminal sexual misconduct? Sure, if any of those things are true, then yeah, then it's a rebuttable presumption. But absent that, when I walk into court, no, I have 50% parenting time. Thing one, I, I think everyone needs to open their mouth and say I have a 14th Amendment due process right to 50% parenting time for my kids, period. And I think everybody should have a PDF of this brief where they can just roll it out, right? The work's already been done. Second point, the research shows that it's best for the kids. If we care for the kids and the parent and the parents are both have both survived this rebuttable presumption, they're both decent people, there's no endangerment is it i mean i could go through some of the research in terms of depression less depression less obesity less alcohol addiction less less dependency on drugs more independence more um higher income outputs higher educational outputs so all, all these social indi indicators in terms of anxiety and depression everything goes up in an equal in an equal household not to mention so that's the kids not to mention the parents feel better about one another because they're not battling one another and they're not Kid, so one constitutional two if we're looking out for people's health right let's do joint parenting equal joint shared parenting yeah i, mean, I think I, dead on i mean i think one of the biggest things and, and i don't know if casey's uh watching tonight but we've had this conversation with the executive director of the father's rights movement and it's there's research that shows that a, a mother who has 50 50 custody is something like 54 percent more likely to be a six-figure earner um, and mental health scores are higher than a mother who has 75% or more custody. The fathers across the board, if they have 50% custody, their mental health scores are through the roof compared to the dad who has less than 25%. Um, and, and I think we know the issues with child support. You think about it, you're preventing the mom from making money because you're putting so much parental responsibility on her. And then you're taking, unless the dad's making $200,000 a year, you're essentially driving him into poverty when you give him 25, 12, 0% custody when half of his income is going to child support. You create two low-income households. How is that ever going to be in the best interest of the child when we know wealth of a family is a major indicator of academic success, college graduation, and a whole number of things? Yeah. You mentioned two things that I hadn't mentioned. Um, do we have time to dive in dive yeah, into them? Go right for now? it, dude. We got we got plenty of time. Okay. Uh spousal support. Is it called spousal support in California? Is it alimony? Yeah, we're spousal support out here. Spousal support. So in Minnesota, it's it's referred to as either alimony, spousal support, or spousal maintenance, right? Whatever. Money you pay to the spouse, I think is unconstitutional. Um, the best interest standard, I think is unconstitutional. I filed a challenge in federal court for spousal maintenance, spousal support, uh, challenging the constitutionality. And um, here's the here here are the reasons, right? Spousal maintenance, spousal support. Th it's the same reason. Void for vagueness. Both of them. Both give the court a list of factors, you know, for for um, 
the best interest standard. It's <clears throat> 17 factors, 13 factors, whatever, various factors where, again, the judge can just, based on that judge's or that guardian ad litem or that custody evaluator or that parenting consultant, that person, based on what, what objective standard are they using besides their preferences? They are, they are making scientific or they're making legal their personal preferences based on the way they would go through these factors. That's unconstitutional because it fails void for vagueness. It can't be verified, right? Like a speed limit, you know, because the sign is posted at 60 miles an hour. Here, how can you predict in advance what the court is going to say is in the best interest? Then if you can't, there's no notice. Therefore, there's no due process. Therefore, it's unconstitutional. And moreover, it's vague, right? These factors can be interpreted by Judge A differently than Judge B. Those same vague factors are in the spousal maintenance statute. Therefore, both should be struck. So now there's three constitutional arguments that should be brought to your attorney. One is the parenting time statute, two is spousal maintenance, and three is the best interest standard. And then you ask yourself, what's left? What are we gonna do with family court then, right? And that's a great question. Where, where, where are the attorneys who are going to write the new family court, right, for this new era? where we recognize that what you just said, all these stats about how the number of benefits and the, and, the, and the anxiety and depression and the truancy that would go down if families could have 50% shared joint custody. I mean, you think about that as a starting point, and and I guess my, my background was in the sports industry, and if you told me that a guy's contract was going to end up if you couldn't agree, you're going to pay, you're going to get this much money for one year. You would be able to come to a mutually beneficial agreement because you knew where that, that final point was yep. like family law attorneys aren't going away because there's always going to be contested issues. There's always going to be serious problems. There's, I mean, domestic violence is a serious issue. Um, so are you mentioning that because you're saying that the bar the lawyers, the lawyers are the biggest opponent to this whole sh sh shebang. I, I think he, he, here's the thing. Here's my honest opinion is yeah. that you look at there's there's two groups that are going to fight against reform. And that's going to be we'll call like the women's groups like National Organization of Women, domestic violence groups, kind of all in one group. And then the bar associations. Um, and both of those groups are much larger and much more well-funded. I mean, the most well-funded groups that are fighting against this legislation, we've, we've seen it in Texas and some other states, are the bar associations. They're the ones that pay high-dollar lobbyists. They're the ones that don't. those lobbyists are donating to, um, to these political campaigns to ensure that, I, I think you said Minnesota got killed in committee. I think there were five states this year that had equal and shared parenting bills that got killed in committee. Yeah. So it's something that's happening across the country. I mean, I tell clients this all the time, right? Like it's a, it's a weird thing because I make more money if my clients suffer and have a long, protracted, litigious, uncomfortable divorce, right? I make more money. Yet my job is to represent my client's interests. It's mm -hmm. this insane... Um, our interests are different, right? So how do you tell your client, yo, look, um, I know you're paying me a bunch of money,
But the longer I drag this out, the more money I make. So, so you tell them it's in your best interest for this to be an amicable, um, swift divorce where everybody gets along, right? I don't know how you overcome that. For me, I overcome it by just, I want to be in this for the long game, right? I want to be in this for the next 50 years. And I want my clients to say, hey, Ryan was that dude that gave it to us straight, was frank with us, was honest, right? He didn't rake us over the coals during that divorce. And we're going to use him 5, 10, 15, 20, 25, 30, 35 years down the line because I earned their trust. That's the only way um, I can, That that's the way I I approach it. And I justify what I'm doing to myself in terms of, looking out for clients best interests. Yeah, I think I think that's really the only way you you can deal with it. I look at it the same way. I look at every single client and I say my hope is that I'm giving you part of this initial retainer back because we handle this swiftly. The parents make decisions, not judges. We don't get the judges ordering evaluators or guardian ad litems or child attorneys aren't common out here in California. I think they they are in your state, correct? Correct. Yeah, so we'll, we'll, we'll dive into that. So we're going to get you a commercial break here real quick. And then on the flip side, we'll talk uh, some more constitutional law and probably talk uh, evaluators and guardian ad litems. You love your children and want them to have everything. How about both parents? Introducing Equal Shared Parenting Benefits Program. The program is very simple. Sign up, download the app, access services. Equal Shared Parenting Benefits Program offers access to medical market, telemedicine, mental wellness, medical bill negotiation and advocacy, chronic care, and a wellness savings program with membership add-ons available soon, like prepaid legal services, prepaid college savings plans, prepaid identity theft protection services, and much more. Annual memberships starting at just $35 a month. Here's what our members say about us. You guys are a huge blessing in my life. This community is amazing. I truly thank you for all that you do. Learn more and sign up at www.tfrm.org. Equal Shared Parenting Benefits Program. It's about the children. They're today and they're tomorrow. All right, we are back. I am Mark Real. I'm here with Minnesota attorney Ryan McLaughlin. Um, and we are talking constitutional law right now. Let's dive into um, the piece we got to just before the commercial there. One of the biggest pieces of contention in many states, because some states statutorily require guardian ad litems, child's attorney, depends on the state to be um, given to minor children in specific situations. Um, what's your take on those and how should men deal with when the judge does order that guardian ad litem? Mm. <clears throat> uh, so first of all, guardian ad litems are, are rare commodities in Minnesota, right? They You can request one if there's allegations of abuse towards the child or if the child needs particular attention. <clears throat> but they're they're a hot commodity. Clients want them, so they're in short demand. Their caseloads are hot. And if you do get one, it's going to be like a six-month wait in some counties, particularly the counties close to the Twin Cities, which are the more populous, densely populated areas, right? Um, I don't know what your question was, but uh, how do fathers deal with them or how should fathers consider them? I think it depends on the facts. I mean, I don't know what your question is getting at. They're charged with doing what's right for the kid. So it depends on the angle, how well they do their job. Um, the issue that I've been raising 
with all of these affiliates in the court system that aren't judges or attorneys, all of these so-called experts, is that they're stepping into the shoes of these expert positions, but are they qualified, right? Are they, and is anybody qualified? Is anybody qualified to, besides the parents from a constitutional standpoint to say, oh, you know what, guys, Johnson's or Smith's or whatever your name is, we know what's best for you because I'm the guardian ad litem and, and um, I have the sanction and the cloak of the state. I have the authority of the court. I know what's best and I know that these kids should spend more time with mom or dad for the following reasons. Um, I don't think they have the constitutional, they don't have the constitutional authority to, to make those statements. And by their own code of ethics, so for instance, a psychologist making recommendations, right? Are they qualified and or competent to be making those recommendations? And if not, for instance, do they have the training in childhood trauma? Do they have training in addiction? Because they're practicing in all these fields willy nilly. They're making these diagnoses. Oftentimes they're not, they're not doctors, right? So, so how can a guardian ad litem with 20, 40 hours of training, a parenting consultant with the same, how can they make these medical diag diagnoses about mental health, um, about narcissism, about this, that, or the other thing um, without being a trained medical professional? Uh, it, it, it's an ethical violation. Um, were you going somewhere specifically with this? Because I had something else I wanted to say. No, I think I think my opinion of of really there are there are so many uh, individuals outside of attorneys that yeah. make big money off of this. Whether in California we have two different types of evaluations that can run clients seven, ten, fifteen thousand um, dollars to get these court ordered evaluations done. And at the end of the day, that evaluator, they're doing the judge's job, essentially. The judge is pawning off their decision-making to someone else, and that person's essentially deciding what the facts are in the case. Like we get these 20-page, 30-page, 40-page reports, and it's basically just a, a therapist, a psychologist, their opinion of what the facts of the case are. So how do you, so how do you attack that? Or how, how do you count how, it, how, if there's people watching this, who are like shaking their heads. Yeah, I got this report and it's bogus. And the judge is just dishing this off. Um, is that just the reality, the nature of the beast, right? The court has too many people inside. The judge doesn't have enough hours. There's not enough clerks. We got to do something. And this is what we're doing. Uh, or if that is the case, how do you attack it? Well, I think I always tell, and I, and I, ha I have some, some evaluations that are years old and the the conclusions don't make any sense in them. I always tell clients, unless we absolutely need it, we don't want to bring extra people into this. It's yeah. an added expense. Um, you have, they're, they're, like you said, are they qualified? What type of decisions are they going to make? And their opinions are going to weigh very heavily on the judge. So it's not always the best thing. And a lot of times clients, oh, let, let's get an evaluation done. Let's do this. Let's do that. And a lot of times it's not going to be the best option to just get more people involved. It's just going to make things more expensive. Um, and I think that the biggest thing is I, I, you see it a lot is you have these reports where the mom's withholding kids, the mom's the one that's difficult and the evaluator will lay that out. And then their conclusion is dad should be in every other weekend dad. And you're like, the what? 
why like you you just spent 25 pages talking about how difficult mom is and then you say dad's supposed to be an every other weekend dad and no matter what was said in the report it can be challenging to overcome the fact that they said conclusion based on the 40 hours that i build these people to do this report is that mom should have 75 percent custody yeah and so, I see that very, very common. They they aren't very creative in their solutions. And a lot of times it's just rubber stamp a plan that may not even work for both parents either. Yeah, I think what you're at, what, what I'm hearing from, you know, these grievances, right? But so, so we talked about the constitutional ways in which you can see the system working. You can feel dissatisfied with it. And now you have a hammer and uh, a mallet ways to challenge the system for your benefit for parenting time for spousal support and for the best interest standard the thing that i forgot to mention that it that was brought to my attention recently by a client and i think is super fascinating is the american with disabilities act and how does that apply in family court right if you like criminal court so you can get your kids taken away from you in family court a fundamental right right you can have your parenting time taken away and no lawyer, right? Pro se. You don't have the money. You don't have the funds. You don't got the cash. Too bad. No lawyer. The other party does. They have way more money than you because you guys were never married and he made all the money or she made all the money and now you got nothing and he's got a high powered attorney or she's got a high powered attorney. Too bad. Um, So sad. If they steamroll you in court, that's just the way it is. Sign R to your kids. That's not only does that infringe on your constitutional right to parent your kids, as we discussed, but the American with Disabilities Act says, and the it applies to the courts, right? Because the court is a public entity. If you have a disability, uh, reasonable accommodations have to be made. So to the fathers out there who have PTSD, who have anxiety, who have uh, communication disorders, social communication disorders, and you can look up Anything you think is a disorder um, would be under the DSM-5. So um, if you have difficulty articulating your thoughts under when it's super stressful and intimidating to be in court, even in Zoom court, it's super like it's formal. You have to know when to talk and like the right legal jargon. And it's 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 it makes me nervous every single time. It makes me nervous. Um how do you know what to say? How do you, what if you, you have a panic attack because you're so nervous and there's these allegations about you. That is a disorder that is covered by the American with, that is a disability. And, and you have a right under the American with disabilities act to demand and be provided accommodations. What, what kind of accommodations, right? The classic example is if you're in a wheelchair, you get a ramp, not stairs, right? You got to have a ramp. Well, what's the equivalent for someone with PTSD? And you can go to a doctor and they will hear your symptoms. And perhaps if they meet the criteria, identify you and diagnose you with PTSD or anxiety or social community, perhaps you should be entitled to an attorney and have one paid for. Perhaps you need more time than the judge's calendar allows. And you need to have an interpreter with you sitting next to you because you're representing yourself pro se, but you need a, a, a counselor to be there and help you think about and process what your response should be. And is the court equipped with its calendar to be like, 
yo people we got stuff happening you got to move this that the other thing we'll schedule this for another review hearing go talk to so-and-so is that sufficiently accommodating your disability i don't think it is and i haven't litigated this right this is new to my attention but a, a client brought it to my attention who's who has autism and he said i've been struggling with this i've made demands in the court um and i haven't been heard and i think this is incredibly interesting um not necessarily a constitutional claim but a super interesting claim yeah i've uh, i actually uh the uh most compelling case i've i've heard about in federal court around family court is actually an ada claim um out what here in california facts? what are the what are the facts or what are the like what's the basic setup what is it um it has to do with uh I obviously can't give give too much detail on it. We can, yeah, but generally, it. but uh, essentially, uh, it has to do with the father uh, having a physical disability, and the mother was able to apply. They have fifty fifty custody, and the mother was able to apply for benefits before the father, even though she's able bodied, it can work. She could apply while she was pregnant and he could not they have 50 50 custody and the only one parent can get those benefits so the disabled parent uh was basically out of luck because the other parent had nine months to file before they could is the disabled parent um are they still at 50 50 parenting time yeah 50 50. okay yeah i think it's but i, I think why this ada thing is interesting is it, it you we should be and how difficult it is to go to family court right because think about the stakes they're just as high or higher as criminal court and think about all the protections we have in criminal court right all the miranda rights and all these checks and balances that family court because it's a court of equity we just kind of let it slide like you don't get an attorney but you can have your kids taken away from you right yeah it, it, it's fundamentally and, and what I mean by fundamentally, I mean constitutionally. I don't just mean my opinion. I mean, according to the Constitution, we're guaranteed more. And I think what the ADA brings is it says, look, we have a statutory commitment to the fact that if you're disabled in some way, we're going to help you out as a matter of law. And I think people need to start bringing those challenges to the judges to be like, judge, I have a disability here. And we as a country have a commitment to help me out. And that includes you and your courtroom and your chambers and your staff. Yeah, that's that's very, very compelling. And like I said, the, the most interesting and intriguing federal action I have seen, it revolves around that. And I told him that I said, this is this is something that could create major change. Yeah, for sure. It's super it's it's super necessary. Um, it, it gives me in this practice that is you hear these stories of people whose lives have just been torn apart and stripped apart and you can read comment threads and get it all day. These things that we have been discussing are tools that I think can help hack our way out of this, this system in a positive way. Yeah. All right. So we got about 15 minutes left. So I wanted to leave the last 15 minutes uh, for questions. I already got a few questions picked out. If you have questions, drop them in the comments now and we'll get to a few of them here. So the first one you mentioned toolbox. So we got Ashley's question here. When due process isn't given to a father in court, what can he do? So you go in there, you raise these constitutional concerns, 
the judge just dismisses them. What is the next step for fathers? Yeah. In Minnesota, I think you have three choices. One, you can wait to the conclusion of the case and appeal, which is an expensive and the burden is against you and you're likely to fail, both because of money and because the appellate court's rubber stamp. Two, you can ask the judge to reconsider, which, and procedurally, I don't know if these will apply in the other states, but I think the basics apply, right? Appeal, um, request to reconsider, motion to reconsider, same thing. Um, mm -hmm. Inform the judge, say, hey, judge, I know you have a lot going on. These are the facts again. Can you take a second look at this? I've been, I've been, I've been like 50-50 successful here in requests to reconsider. Um, and in Minnesota, you have to request to make a motion to reconsider. So the judge has to grant your request in order to file a motion to the court to reconsider. So there's so you have to request to to request the judge to reconsider the ruling. Yeah, it's real fun. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um. And thirdly, you can appeal, and this is in Minnesota, you can appeal to the court in a writ of mandamus, which is like fast track, get to the court of appeals because it's not a final issue. It's not the court. The case hasn't come to its conclusion yet. You, you need the appellate court to weigh in ASAP because of a highly important issue. And you're asking the court, the appellate court, to issue a writ of mandamus, mandating at that moment. It's called a writ of mandamus or a writ of prohibition. They're the same thing. We're asking the appellate court to mandate that the district court do this or prohibit the district court from doing this. And those three modes of relief outside of that, if, if you've been violated due process wise, those are the only, those are the three tools in my toolkit. Yeah, that's, it's about the same in, in California. The, the, the biggest challenge when bad family law decisions are made is just the sheer expense and the technicality that goes into an appeal. Yeah. Um, you don't have to request to request the uh, motion to reconsider, but uh, you, you, it's just there, there's so much expense involved. I think that's the biggest thing when you see stats like 80 to 90% of men who go into family court are unrepresented. Um, a lot of times these guys get saddled with, uh, you see it all the time in California. I don't know how child support when it's when it gets situated in Minnesota, but they may go three to six months before DCSS says this is what child support's going to be. And all of a sudden, if it's two thousand dollars a month, they're twelve thousand dollars in arrears right away. Yeah, that is not the way it is in Minnesota, but that's preposterous. It's even worse. We had we had uh, Texas attorney uh, Cassandra Daniels on. They can go back four years in the state of Texas. So no one files, no one does anything. Mom can decide one day that, you know what, uh, or, or the custodial parent can decide one day, I want child support and the office of the attorney general can go after the past four years. You talk about putting a dad in a hole. Um, when he could have been, he's been there supporting and doing all those things for so long. And we haven't even touched on child support. And I don't, I don't necessarily want to touch on child support because it's such a, such a separate and distinct issue, but suffice it to say, it's just, it's just another component of this thing that is um, ripe for, for reformulation. Yeah. And I think it's, it can be put pretty, there's, there needs to be, there needs to be child support, but there needs to be guardrails on it. We yeah. have no guardrails to prevent poverty. 
but yeah, right. like you said, that that's that's a whole nother issue. That's a whole nother show. And in terms of if we get a 50-50 presumption, it solves a lot of those issues. That's very true. All right, let me let me find here another question. This is an interesting one. Uh, we can both both weigh in on this. Why Ooh. can't we have a jury trial for all civil actions? I'd trust the public over a judge. I've heard With, that so many times. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, there are there there's in Texas you can request a jury trial, and there's one other state, but it's slipping me what state it is. What's um, your answer to the question? You know, I think that I, I think it would be interesting, and we really wouldn't know until it would actually happen on a regular basis. Um, yeah. Would the general public, uh, I, just in talking to dads on a daily basis, um, I would say that seven to eight out of every ten dads, the mom's either severely restricting or withholding the kids, and they're being told by the mother's family that mom gets to make decisions. You can't take kids away from their moms. And I think you would run the risk. There would probably be more accountability, but you would run the risk of running into getting jurors like that. I mean, if you had a, either six or 12, whatever it may be, if you if 80 to 90% of men can't afford attorneys right now, how are they going to navigate the jury trial process? There would have to be fundamental change if you were going to allow jury trials. Wait, what was the last part? There would have to be fundamental change to allow. You mean just this is going to be a lot of jurors needed all the time? A lot of expense. I mean, jury trials take more time out yeah. here in Southern California. I mean, judges are seeing 70, 80, 90, upwards of 100 hearings a week. If all of a sudden you're trying to coordinate jury trials and your everything that goes along with a jury trial, there would just have to be fundamental change in the way family courts operate to even allow that. So I think this is an interesting question because it gets to like, where does it say? Um, I would trust the public over a judge. So what they're saying is like the judge, the judge's decision-making is bunk. And we would rather have any other smorgasbord of people give us anybody other than the judge. Um, I like that. I like outsourcing that to AI or an algorithm or something faster, efficient. I mean, Elon Musk is colonizing Mars. Like the fact that we have to get a judge who's a like a guy wearing a wizard cape or um, a bunch of Joe Joe you know, Joe, Joe and Susie and Bill round them up all the people from the community and have them sit over this conflict. When we have so much data from family court, why can't we just run it through an algorithm, right? Like progressive does for its auto insurance claims or, 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 or whatever. There's so much data in these 50 states, so many cases let's quant assemble, aggregate, disaggregate, run it through an equation. Um, I think we've got to like look at at the possibility of doing that. Yeah, I, I actually, I believe it was the ABA um, had an article a little while back that there is some progress in terms of um, in family law, you file and artificial intelligence deems which bucket the case should go in, um, in terms of what type of attention it needs from a judge. 
So the artificial intelligence is able to look at things, drops it in a bucket to help streamline the process. So it's it's more of a customized fit depending on what the situation is. Yeah, but regardless to the person's question, I completely agree. I think you, you are spot on to be suspicious of I agree. I don't know. I think you're right. A jury is not practical. I think we just have to figure out a way to train up AI, right? They can win in chess. Why can't they win as judges? Do you guys have facts, findings, and conclusions in Minnesota? Yeah. Yeah. So in, in terms of, of that, do you see that or maybe having a ro more robust requirement around that, potentially keeping uh, judges more in line, more accountable to their decisions? I mean, I think I don't know if this is answering your question or not, but isn't the question about like we're asked to make apply the best interest standard? So you're going to go through each of the factors and cite facts, um, and then you're going to say for the following facts, you know, dad takes the kid to tennis practice only on one day. Mom has taken the kids to all the practices and done all the bathings and done all the meals and done all the things. Therefore, mom gets ninety percent. 95% parenting time, dad gets five. That's a rational thing, right? You can't appeal that because it's um, there's no there's no abundant error. The court followed a reasoned logic, articulated the logic, made a decision. I think we should have metrics. I don't know what those metrics are. That's why the 50-50 standard is so nice because it's a metric. And that's why I think we should throw out the best interest standard because it's just do whatever you want and pretend to follow these standards, point to these standards, but really, Judge A and Judge B could do totally different things on totally different days, depending upon, you know, how the Lakers do if they're a Lakers fan. Yeah. All right. So we'll take one last question here. So we'll take uh, Susie's question here. So what do you do when you believe, or it actually is, the judge is being biased against you? Um, and this is a good place to end because I think it's everyone's job in court to educate everybody else on the literature, on the social science research. It's the client's job to bring it up to the attorneys. It's the attorney's duties to bring it up to the court and other attorneys. Um, cite this research that we were talking about, you know, and specifically the research about, so if, if a judge is against the man, inform the court about how beneficial it is for kids to be around their dads, cite the research. And we go through this research ad nauseum ad nauseum in the briefs that I have for this constitutional argument uh, towards the 50-50 standard. You know, um, so I'll just read off one fact. Preschool children aged three to five in joint physical custody have fewer psychological problems than those who live mostly or only with one parent. You go on and on for hours, just citing stats just like that. That's what I would say to a judge. Yeah. I mean, hey, it's something like there's over 125 studies that say that maximizing parenting time or relatively equal parenting time uh, is in the best interest of the child. Like the science is, you can't really debate on the science what the best interest is. Then you add in the benefits to both parents. So I, I, I completely agree with you. It's I, I think a lot of times we get people on the bench that have either been in the system for so long that it's easy to do business as usual, or right. they've been on the bench so long that they haven't read anything in the family code for 25 years when some states still set literally said mom gets custody. Yep. Yep. Spot on. 
All right, my man, uh, we're wrapping up now. I want to thank you so much for, for coming on tonight. Um, we had the comments were blowing up. Um, definitely uh, provided a lot of information to the viewers tonight. Uh, so thank you. You got anything you want to leave the viewers with, how they can get a hold of you? Yeah, absolutely. So if you guys have questions, want to talk about these briefs that we submitted in Minnesota court about how to challenge the Constitution in your state, um, happy to talk. Message me, 763-316-8323. Um, find me on Facebook, Ryan McLaughlin. Message me personally. That's fine. Um, the biggest thing is to spread spread the word, right? Share this post, share this live feed with folks who are going through their own battles, their own custody issues. Um, and, and, and this whole series about providing free education, adding as much value as possible, um, props to Mark. Um, amazing, amazing and necessary for, for this time in 2021. All right, guys, our time here is up tonight, um, but I want to thank everybody for watching. Thank Ryan for his time. Uh, next week, we will be back at our regularly scheduled time. Uh, thank you for Ryan jumping in last second here and providing so much value, and we will see everyone next week. Thanks, Mark. Appreciate it.